Are you Saxon enough to take back England from the Norman invaders? Well, let's find out with Defender of the Crown, this week on the Upper Memory Lock Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity, or do you die here? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 104 of the Upper Memory Block podcast. I'm your host, Joe, back with you once again to talk about a game from the DOS and pre-Windows XP gaming era. Yeah, I'm back with a real episode. So yeah, I, I had the uh, the mailbag up out uh, a couple weeks ago that, uh, you know, where we sort of got through the backlog of stuff and... Uh, you know, had some really great emails, some really good uh, thoughts and, and stuff like that. And that was super fun. And that gave me uh, a bit of time to get through the rest of my research for uh, for this show. And we've got a big one here. So I don't want to spend too much time talking because that's basically all I did last episode was just sort of blather on about things. So uh, yeah, let's get right to it. So we didn't get through quite all the emails last week. We got uh, two more that uh, we should run through. First one in direct response to the mailbag episode from my good pal, Alima. And she writes, hello, Joe and fellow blockers. Well, look at that. You're back. How awesome. Thanks for the shout out. And your talk at the end about going home really spoke to me. Sometimes uh, you really can't go home. And much like you said, the Larry series doesn't speak to me today like it did back in the 90s. Uh, but sometimes you can't. Just last week, I picked up the FMV Zork games during the Steam sale, despite already owning them in CD version and on GOG, and replayed them. I stuck to uh, Return to Zork and Zork Grand Inquisitor, since I'd already bought and played my absolute favorite, Zork Nemesis, last summer. Had an absolute blast, the humor still lands, and even though the graphics are dated, uh, you know those games will always be special to me, and I had tons of fun discussing them with other FMV fans while I streamed. Videos might still be up depending on when you read this email. Anyhow, it's great to have you back and I'm looking forward to new UMB shows. Take care, Alima slash Emily. Well, thanks, Alima. And yeah, you know that, you know, I, I definitely talked about it in, in the last episodes where, you know, there's some, uh, definitely some games that don't hold up. I definitely referenced Duke Nukem. And, and just today, interestingly enough, uh, I noticed a, a bit of a news story about a uh, potential Duke Nukem movie <laughs> to be produced by Michael Bay's uh, production company. No director or anything attached as of yet. But I sort of sat there and went, really? This is something that we need in the world? But, you know, I guess they made a Battleship movie. They made, uh, you know, the Pacific Rim movies. I'm expecting it to be about as... Uh, about as compelling as those uh they're fun I'm, I'm expecting a popcorn movie if if anything but uh should be interesting but yeah you know that's definitely one of those games that doesn't quite hold up for me but um you know it is what it is so thanks a lot alima and next we have an email from ziggy which actually came in a little while ago but uh it got sort of misfiled in uh in the notes of the last episode so here we go ziggy writes Hi, Joe, a fellow Torontonian here. I just recently began listening to your podcast after, long story alert, I bought an SNES Mini. Uh, I never owned one as a kid and began listening to the SNES podcast and heard them mention UMB. 
In the past two weeks, I've voraciously listened to about a quarter of your catalog. I was a kid in the 80s and a teen in the 90s and was obsessed with DOS and early Windows computer games ever since I was eight and my dad came home with an XT PC loaded with Leisure Suit Larry 1 and a CGA monitor. I played the heck out of that game uh, in all its beige and brown glory. It taught me how to play poker and spell prophylactic. The second game I played on that PC was Defender of the Crown, obtained by dubious means from my father's coworker. I strongly preferred that game to LSL 1. I was completely engrossed by having to manage my lands and armies and watching my empire grow. Defender led me to Civilization and multiple other strategy and resource management games. Ultimately, my love of resource management games and the skills I learned from the constant need to upgrade and optimize garbage computers led me to a career in industrial engineering optimizing city infrastructure. Basically, my job is SimCity's water and sewer pipe functionality. On a complete side note, uh, related to your Feats of Strength episode, I once ran Need for Speed CD on an early 386 with little RAM and no CD player. It required downloading the game to another hard drive, linking that hard drive to mine and downloading the game, not having anything loaded on my hard drive besides the OS, some drivers, and Need for Speed, overclocking my motherboard, keeping a bag of ice on the motherboard when playing Need for Speed that soon changed to fanning cold air through an icy dishcloth over the motherboard on the day I learned all about water and electronics. Keep up the good work. Well, thanks very much, Ziggy. That's uh, that's definitely a bit of a feat of strength there. Uh, you know, some... Uh, how do I want to explain it? Ghetto cooling. <laughs> you know, a bag of ice sitting on top of your motherboard. Because I'm trying to think. 386, I, I think, yes, I definitely had a 386... And I think even my 486s didn't have um, CPU coolers on them. It was just, I definitely remember the 386 for sure. Didn't have a CPU cooler. It just, when you popped open, you know, popped open the case, you saw the motherboard there and the the CPU was right there. It said, you know, I386, blah, blah, blah. And all its, uh, you know, cool graphics glory uh, printed on the chip. So, you know, cooling, I think was a little bit less of an issue at the time. And, uh, you know, if you were definitely overclocking and doing all kinds of stuff like that, you would have had to figure out something and bag of ice. Hey, why not? (laughs) It's pretty awesome. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for Okay, at long last, let's get to it. This week, we will be discussing in a slight change of pace, but you know we're still we're still in the realm of things. Uh, we're going to be discussing one of the giants of the Amiga, Defender of the Crown. Now, Defender of the Crown is a uh, is I guess the, the first in I guess what you would consider uh, a series of two games, but really I, I like looking at this as a standalone game uh, developed and published by a, a very important company that I have not spoken much about in uh, over 100 episodes called CinemaWare. Uh, the game was released way back in 1986 for the Amiga and was ported to DOS in 1987. So uh, Defender of the Crown is pretty much the definition of a turn-based strategy game if we want to start talking about genre. However, it does have uh, sort of a smattering of, uh, of action Uh, thrown into the mix. So the standard implementation of a turn-based strategy game tends to have you in control of some type of group or organization. Uh, It could be a country, it could be a military force, a company, I mean, really anything that has a leader and that does things in uh, any form of, uh, you know, process. 
your goal is uh, to come out on top of, uh, you know, usually a, a group of similar organizations, you know, either defeat a military force, uh, blah, 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 you know, become the most profitable company, whatever you want to, whatever you want to say. So to do this, you're generally handed a set of objectives, uh, the type and specificity of those objectives have a lot to do with uh, the specific type of organization you're in charge of. You may need to, as I said, defeat an opposing military force. Uh, you may need to defeat, take over, or befriend, befriend, befriend neighboring municipalities, neighboring countries, whatever. So methods to go about these objectives are also widely varied. Uh, you may be able to negotiate, defend, attack, or pay off uh, other groups to help yourself and your allies uh or, you know, to hinder your enemies. Now, the fact that these games are considered turn-based dictates the pace at which the game unfolds. Now, generally, in a turn-based strategy game, once your turn comes up, the action is paused. This allows you to, as a leader, carefully consider your actions and their effects on both you and on, you know, other human or computer-based players. Now, this this sort of leads to a slower-paced, more thoughtful approach than uh, this genre's counterpart, the real-time strategy game, which is, uh, by definition, a little bit more frantic and a little bit more frenetic. Of course, you can't win the game in a single turn, so you're generally limited in the actions you can perform uh, before you're forced to end things and allow other players their move. This is accomplished either by a system of action points, a phased action system, or any other, other number of, of creative approaches to uh, turn construction. So that's the very general description, description, discussion, description of a very broad genre. Let's talk Defender of the Crown. All right, so let's talk story. Uh, there certainly is one here, at least as background to set up the game. Uh, the manual describes the world pretty succinctly, so I may as well just read it off. It says, it is a time of legends, a time for heroes, a time of bitter strife, when great men rise above their peers to perform great deeds. A chapter of history is in the making. Your liege, the king, is dead, the throne vacant. Britain enters a season of destruction, a winter of killing that can and only with the last brave Saxon knight lies dead or the castles of the Normans lie in heaps of rubble emptied of the foul oppressors that have enslaved your people. It is a time when foreign invaders shall turn truths, shall learn truths administered by the shining blades of Saxon swords. It is a time when heroes are made and legends are born. Okay, so that's all very dramatic and it's pretty impressive, but what does it actually mean? Well, it's the Middle Ages, uh, the year 1149, to be precise. Uh, the king has been assassinated, and this leaves the factions of England fighting for control of the land. Now, England is controlled by a group of lords. Uh, our heroes, the Saxons, who are the original inhabitants of, uh, of England, uh, the Saxons or Anglo-Saxons, as they are uh, also known, are descended from Germanic tribes that migrated from uh, continental Europe across the English Channel and settled on the Isle of Britain probably around the 5th century, if uh, my Wikipedia is accurate. Um, the other group are the Normans. 
In the 11th century, an army consisting of Norman, Breton, and French soldiers crossed the Channel and began an invasion of England. Uh, This force was led by Duke William II of Normandy, or, as he would later become known, William the Conqueror. Through a series of battles versus both the Saxons and Harald Hardar, I guess this is a hard one, Hardarda of Norway, uh, William would eventually ascend to the throne of England around the year 1072. Uh, this led to many Saxons fleeing England for Scotland, Ireland, or Scandinavia. However, at least in the context of the game, some Saxon lords remained in control of their lands and their armies. You are one of those Saxon lords returned from some time away. Your task is described to you by your one-time ally and current outlaw, Sir Robin of Loxley, as you visit him in his camp in Sherwood Forest. Sir Robin, or Robin Hood, as he is more commonly known, uh, tells you that you must defeat the Norman hordes and reclaim the throne of England for the Saxons. Not only that, but Sir Robin offers you his help and the help of his band of merry men. So off we go to your castle where we can talk gameplay. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. All right, so now we know the story, we know where we're at. Time to talk gameplay. Uh, I will be focusing... I guess I'll technically be focusing mainly on the DOS version, which is a little bit different from the C64 and Amiga and many, many other versions. We'll get into the reasons behind that later. Uh, I'd contend the Amiga version of Defender of the Crown is probably the de facto version, but uh, this isn't an Amiga podcast, so yeah, we'll talk about it, but uh, yeah, you know, we'll see where we end up. So, as the game begins you are asked to select a Saxon Lord to play. Uh, You're faced with four choices. Uh, They are Wilfred of Ivanhoe, Cedric of Rotherwood, Joffrey Longsword, and Wolfric the Wild. Now, the Lord you select as your avatar isn't just for kicks. Uh, They each sport a set of three stats, which uh, determine their strengths and their weaknesses at the, the three main aspects of gameplay. Firstly, we have Leadership. As you may guess, this stat represents the Lord's skill at leading and motivating their men in battle. Next, we have Jousting. This, of course, determines their skill at the Joust. And finally, Swordplay determines how adept each Lord is with a blade. Now, each stat has four possible ratings, poor, average, good, and strong. Uh, I had good luck with Wilfred of Ivanhoe, who's sort of an all-arounder with good leadership and Jousting, but only average Swordplay. Um... That doesn't really affect my playstyle very much, as I tend to focus a bit more on the military side of things. We'll see that in a second. Another good bet is taking uh, Jeffrey or Joffrey Longsword, who has uh, average leadership and jousting, but strong swordplay. Uh, we'll he- hear a bit more about a strategy with him in one of our voicemails. Cedric of Rotherwood has strong leadership, good jousting, but poor swordplay. And finally, Wolfric the Wild's a strong jouster, but only an average leader and Swordsman. So selecting your avatar brings us into the game proper. Uh, We now see a map of all the different uh, political divisions in England with six castles dotting the countryside. As a Saxon, you're randomly placed in one of the three northernmost castles. Your goal is now simple. Take over England. 
This is done by capturing all territories on the map and basically obliterating the other lords. Uh, sort of a war of attrition. Now, the manual and the Wikipedia entry for the game imply that this can be done by attacking only Norman lords, provided the other Saxon lords are not antagonistic towards you. I didn't really see evidence of that in my playthrough, but uh, I don't know, maybe in my play sessions I inadvertently made the other Saxons hate me, but I basically, I played quite a few, not quite a few, but a few games, and uh, I always basically just had to murder everyone to win. So, capturing territory occurs in a few ways. Uh, The most straightforward way, the way I prefer, and I'm pretty sure uh, the way the designers at least spent the most time developing is military conquest. Uh, This involves spending your hard-earned gold for various military units such as uh, soldiers, knights, and catapults. Uh, Soldiers are your basic unit, and uh, they make up the bulk of your forces. Uh, Knights and catapults allow you to engage in different tactics such as flanking your enemy or bombarding them in battle. Uh, You recruit these forces at your home castle and then transfer them from your home army into what the game refers to as a campaign army. Uh, This is the army you will take out into the countryside to claim territories for yourself. So if your army moves into an uncontested territory, uh, you just basically immediately take control of it. Each territory offers some amount of uh, additional forces, I guess basically some uh, locals that want to join your cause, plus more importantly, some addition to your monthly gold incomes, I guess sort of a a tithe or something to that uh, effect. As in the real world, some territories are are more valuable than others, so you'll need to rush to grab the good land before it becomes uh, a fight to do so. When the campaign armies engage each other, uh, the fights are fairly straightforward, and generally the bigger army has a better chance of winning, though If your selected Saxon Lord has a higher leadership rating than his opponent, you may have a better chance of coming back from behind. I did get a a few surprises in a few fights where I was outnumbered, but I was able to, uh, to win the day. So another way to capture land is via tournament. Uh, Each turn, you or the other players have the option to call a tournament and have all the Lords engage in jousting. Uh, Before the joust begins, you can choose to play for fame or for territory with rewards for winning and penalties for losing. Uh, If you play for fame, basically not a lot of effect on the game. Uh, Jousting was an interesting idea, but the controls, uh, be they joystick or keyboard on the C64 or mouse on the Amiga and keyboard only on the PC, made for a very... (laughs) Awkward experience, I guess, shall we say. You basically have to try and hit a specific point on your enemy just at the right time with uh, your lance sort of jiggling around uh, in the process. And uh, as I learned both from uh, my play and on advice from uh, from Jim Leonard that you're going to hear later, uh, just joust for fame. It's really just unreliable, even if your uh, your lord is good at it. Now, the last aspect of capturing territory is capturing enemy castles here the wind again tends to go to the bigger army but there's a few ways to turn the tide in your favor firstly while catapults can help you in your regular battles taking castles is really where they come into their own when you assault a castle you actually lay siege to it first over a few days so for the first six days 
you launch artillery at them from your catapult in an effort to weaken defenses before sending in your men. Uh, you have the option of firing boulders, which are ideal at taking down castle walls, uh, and disease or Greek fire, which are more adept at reducing the numbers of garrison uh, units in the castle over time. Uh, there's sort of a mini game aspect to launching your ammunition with the right amount of tension or pullback on the catapult. Um, so, you know, it's sort of a thing that requires a, a little bit of, of learning. Once the siege ends, you storm the castle in a replica of uh, the normal combat sequence. Should you win, you take the castle. If it's the home castle of one of your opponents, you also gain control of all of their associated lands. Uh, there's some other aspects of gameplay. You can raid enemy castles uh, as a more surreptitious way to sort of weaken their defenses and capture gold. Uh, this flips the game into a side-scrolling action combat minigame where you directly control your lord through uh, two screens of sword fighting. Uh, at the end, you find a chest filled with gold. In addition, there's a bit of a romantic aspect to the game where you sometimes gain the opportunity to rescue a captured Saxon maid. This results in the same side-scrolling action, but uh, instead of a bucket of gold, uh, you rescue the maid, taking her as your wife, and you take ownership of some of her lands, and you usually receive a boost to your leadership rating by one level. So if you were good at leadership before, you would now be strong at it, because I guess, you know... If uh, your lord takes a wife, he's much more impressive, <laughs> I guess. Your men want to follow you more because you got a hot wife. Who knows? Finally, uh, should you require some help in battle, you can call on Robin of Loxley and his band of merry men for help three times, and uh, they will bolster, bolster your forces for, uh, for a single battle. It actually does help quite a bit if uh, you just need a, a little bit of a boost to your army. Makes... Uh, I usually did it around castle sieges when uh, I wanted to be sure to win. So via some combination of these mechanics, you fight your war of attrition and hopefully take control of England to win the game. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Okay, Tech Focus. So this has happened on the show a few times before. But uh, as I've already said, Defender of the Crown was not a game that was originally designed for DOS and the IBM PC platform. Defender of the Crown was originally designed for the Commodore Amiga and used the capabilities of that machine to the max, especially from the perspective of graphics and sound. Uh, from its original Amiga version, it would then be performed, uh, you know, ported to a number of platforms, the Commodore 64, the NES, the Atari ST, the ZX Spectrum, the Amstrad CPC, the Mac, and the Apple II GS. Uh, these ports all occurred over the two years after the game's original release in 1986. So, to get the idea of the original capabilities of the game, let's look at the required specs of the Amiga version and then roll into the DOS version, since those two versions were very noticeably quite different. So on the Amiga side, this game requires at least an Amiga 1000 and the Kickstart 1.1 OS. Uh, the game required 512 kilobytes of RAM and supported both the OCS and ECS graphics formats. OCS, or original chipset, had the low res had a had a low res mode that ran at 320 by 200 and up to 32 colors. Uh, which I'd say the game was designed to run in primarily, but uh, I'm not really an Amiga guy, so all of you folks uh, that are, feel free to correct me. 
sound-wise, the Amiga version used that system's sound chip, which supported four simultaneous voices, a relatively fine-grained volume control, and was able to play audio samples, which is uh, what made it so popular in uh, in the demo scene. You know, um, I'm not super familiar again with the Amiga with the demo scene. I should I should probably ask some of the Amiga guys uh, to throw throw in an Amiga special on the feed. Uh, you know, it's a really cool machine that had a lot more capability than the PC did at the time, uh, at least from a a graphics and sound perspective. So, on the Amiga's sound chip, uh, the game's theme sounded a little bit like this. PC. Around 1986, the standard of the day was CGA at four colors and the PC speaker for music. Uh, to run the PC version of Defender of the Crown, you needed at least an 8086 or 8088 CPU, DOS 2.0, 256 kilobytes of RAM versus the 512 of the Amiga, and a CGA display. Uh, as we'll see, EGA and VGA versions of the game eventually came out. However, at launch, we were in four color heaven. PC speaker, with its one voice, interpreted that same intro like so. not as grandiose as the Amiga theme, but I don't know. I think it has a certain charm and, uh, and it sort of grows on you. 
So the original Amiga music was composed by Jim Cuomo. Uh, Jim is a professional musician and composer who would delve into the gaming scene from time to time and uh, composed music. His first contribution was to Olay, a bullfighting game released by Firebird Software in 1985. Uh, In 1986, he scored the Amiga version of Defender of the Crown and would continue working on games for Cinemaware until 1990. Uh, You can find some great orchestrated versions of his Defender of the Crown music over on uh, Tomer's actually personal website. Uh, You know, a good friend Tomer who's always on the... uh, on the Hangouts and all, all that stuff. Uh, you can go grab them from there since he actually has direct permission to distribute them from Jim Cuomo himself. Uh, they're very well done, and I will be sure to post that link in the show notes. Now, the DOS version was adapted to PC speaker by Dave Farquharson, who uh, also worked on uh, other ports of the game. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for development. Woo, dev story time. Okay, so like many games I talk about, Defender of the Crown was the first game launched by its developer, uh, in this case known as Cinemaware. Of course, that means that its inception and development are tied very much to the formation of the company. So Cinemaware was founded by a married couple, Bob and Phyllis Jacob, uh, in 1982. Bob and Phyllis moved from Chicago to Los Angeles. Uh, They'd sold their previous business and made the cross-country move with uh, basically no prospects already set up. Uh, The sale of uh, that business had apparently given them uh, some buffer to try and figure out the the next steps in their lives. In an effort to do that, Bob took to hanging out around the uh, Thousand Oaks Public Library computer room. While there, he perhaps somewhat creepily befriended uh the 12 year olds that hung out in the computer room uh through them he was introduced to the world of arcade gaming and got very quickly hooked also possibly due to this uh he got his hands on his own computer and started attending local user group meetings at these meetings he met many very passionate programmers who were working on very interesting projects. Uh, the issue was, as you may guess from a stereotypical uh, perspective, a lot of them were not particularly articulate. This led him to an idea. He could become a sort of agent for programmers, helping them pitch their ideas around uh, for funding and stuff like that. Uh, he did this successfully for a few years until 1984. This is when, through his agency, he came to a company called Island Graphics. There, he saw the thing that would change his life yet again, the Commodore Amiga. He was completely blown away by the graphical capabilities of the system. He'd always been a fan of movies and storytelling, and with the Amiga, he felt that things had come to a turning point and he now wanted more direct involvement in game development as opposed to simply selling other people's ideas. So he and his wife got some funds together and started a new company, which they called Master Designer Software. Now, Bob's aim was to tell stories, uh, to give people a movie-like game experience where they would get lost and forget about their lives and forget about their troubles and simply focus on the experience of the game, just like you would get lost in a great book or an amazing movie. Also, being an avid arcade gamer as he now was, 
he wanted to bring some of the uh, obsessive sort of twitch action of the arcade into the home. Uh, he got together with writer and designer Kellen Beck and decided to design a game around a rough approximation of the uh, gameplay of the board game Risk. Uh, Bob sort of liked the idea of conquering and defending territories, managing armies, all that sort of thing. But instead of just rolling dice to determine the success or failure of a battle, an arcade-style action sequence, basically a, a minigame in, in today's terms, would decide the outcome. Unlike arcade games where action sequences were basically the entire game and had no sort of connection to each other, the new game would give these sequences more weight since they affected the course of the more strategic part of the game. Not only did this give meaning to these action sequences, it also imparted a sense of urgency to the strategic, slower-paced part of the game. I mean, this may sound stupid and trivial now, but it was very novel at the time. Of course, their new game would be nothing without leveraging the next-generation high-res graphics capabilities of the Amiga. To do this, they hired on Jim Sachs as a lead artist. Using the newly released uh, Deluxe Paint from Electronic Arts, he almost single-handedly created all the scenes for the game, uh, which would be set in England during the conflict between the Saxons and the Normans. The, the result of his work was uh, really amazing, very detailed for the time, uh, 320 by 200 high-res graphics. You know, the setting and uh, the art from, uh, from Jim also led the team to add in some minor RPG elements where, uh, you know, you selected which lord you would play, playing to their strengths would make your success potentially easier, and again, keeping with the cinematic inspiration of the game, uh, which was swashbuckling movies, some aspect of romance had to be thrown in, which was, uh, yet again, a, a bit of a novelty at the time. There wasn't a lot of uh, romance in games in, uh, in 1985, 1986. So, well, all of the design and art on the game were going immensely well. One other very important aspect of things was not chugging along quite as nicely. Um, the company, Master Designer Software, had incorporated at uh, the beginning of 1986 with all, uh, all this pre-design work in place. And uh, Jacob had secured a distribution deal with a publisher named Mindscape, who I think is a publisher we also haven't spoken very much about. The deadline for release per the contract was October 15th, 1986. Now, since uh, Master Designer Software had no in-house developers, just uh, really at this point, the only permanent employees were, uh, were Bob and Phyllis, they uh, you know, had to subcontract uh, the coding work out to a company called Sculpted Software. Now, by July of 1986, it turns out that very little real sellable shippable work had been done on the game code and with the deadline of october things were getting pretty dire in walked jim cutter the first full-time employee of the company outside of bob and phyllis john's first job fire sculpted software now <laughs> they were really in a bind they had no code no developers and a deadline that was less than four months away not many people could take on a task like this but luckily bob jacob had one contact who he thought would be capable of doing it uh, he called up rj michael 
the guy that basically wrote the operating system for the Amiga and offered him $26,000 if he could code the game by the October 15th deadline. Whether Michael was sure that he could do it or not, he took the job, $26,000, and 86 was a, a good amount of money for three months' work. So, hey, why not? Now, <laughs> it was definitely a tough go. Uh, Kellen Beck, the, uh, the lead writer and designer, uh, flew out to be uh, in-house with, uh, with R.J. Michael. Initially, on his first trip, he carried all the game resources in, uh, on discs because, I mean, you know, at the time, really, there was no other real way to get the data to him. Then... Once Kellen was sort of uh, entrenched in the field at, with RJ, regular overnight FedEx shipments of new art resources were the norm. I mean, people were working 20-hour days, turning out art and code and writing to get the game done by October 15th, 1986. Now, RJ, being the uh, sensitive creative type that uh, he potentially was, uh, he didn't apparently even want... Kellen Beck to walk into the same room that he was in to deliver the discs. He just said, slip them under the door and I'm going to keep working. So work was progressing at sort of a, a breakneck pace. Now, interestingly, uh, from its inception, uh, the game, which uh, had become known as Defender of the Crown, was actually planned. I mean, maybe it wasn't planned, but inadvertently was being built as the first real-time strategy game in early forms of the developed game all the players human and uh computer would uh, execute their moves simultaneously or as simultaneously as as was possible without a multi-threaded system uh this was managed through a series of timers and uh <laughs> this means that you know while you're contemplating your move uh the game would be doing things building armies invading territories etc cetera, etc cetera. this resulted in some shall we say somewhat odd behaviors uh the dialogue boxes in the game would uh, appear and disappear randomly in reaction to some event that you didn't trigger um this could have been a surmountable problem but john cutter made the call in in the last month of development and said you know what there's too many small issues there's too much weird behavior there's too much funkiness to work out with this real-time thing let's pull back make this turn-based and and ship a game apparently he regrets this but realistically had they tried to do this they probably would not have made their deadline and the game probably would never have come out and the company would have gone under so with this decision and the crazy amount of work and everything that went into it defender of the crown released on time it was demoed in september at the los angeles commodore show and generated quite a bit of hype. I mean, the game was a technological marvel that pushed the considerable graphical capabilities of the Amiga to its limits, thanks to the creativity of uh, of Jacob and Beck, the incredible and groundbreaking art talent of Jim Sachs, uh, the programming ta talent of R.J. Michael, and of course, the incredible music from Jim Cuomo. Uh, you know, Defender of the Crown set a new benchmark for what the Amiga was capable of doing, and by extension, what a computer game was capable of doing. Before the end of 1986, I mean, we're talking two months, <laughs> the game had sold 20,000 copies. Uh, soon after its initial release, the game was backported to the Commodore 64, uh, DOS CGA, and eventually EGA, the Atari ST, and many, many, many more platforms that I talked about before over the years. Uh, Cinemaware, as uh, the company eventually became known, 
also undertook each port in sort of a unique way. They took it on as sort of a new challenge, new project. So while, you know, most platforms outside of the Amiga needed to have graphics, sound, or other aspects of the game reduced for less powerful or less capable hardware, like we heard with the music for the DOS version, like we saw, you know, with the 32 color, 320 by 200 graphics dumbed down to, uh, I can't remember what it is, 160 by 200 or something, uh, CGA4 color. It was also seen, not just as a, hey, let's port the game and make it work on this potentially less capable system, but it was seen as an opportunity to tweak gameplay and to add features. So not only does Defender of the Crown run on many different platforms, each version is a little different from the others. One version might allow you to pass through Saxon territories, you know, unmolested, whereas the original version of the game wouldn't. Some of them would have slightly more tweaked uh, jousting, slightly more tweaked uh, side-scrolling combat, stuff like that. So, you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting that you get a different experience from the game than uh, depending on which platform you play it on, just outside of technical aspects of things. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So, where can you get your hands on Defender of the Crown today? Well, simple. It is available from our pals over at GOG.com. The bundle includes both the Amiga and the DOS versions with all the various uh, display options and things like that you can can select. You can play EGA, VGA, CGA on the DOS version. Uh, It's very cool, like I just said, to be able to flip between the different versions and see what the differences are. Uh, The Amiga version looks and sounds immensely better. However, the DOS version is... uh, I would venture to say a little bit easier uh, to play. Variety is the spice of life. Say whatever is in your mind freely. Our conversation will be kept in strict confidence. Okay, we've got an email and two voicemails. First email comes from James, and James writes, Hello, Joe and fellow blockers. Before I begin talking about Defender of the Crown, I have to admit that I didn't play this on DOS, and I don't think I ever have. As a UK resident, I actually played this on the Amiga and the Atari ST, as most UK folks would have done. As for the game, I was never really interested in strategy-type titles uh, when I was younger, but the way this game mixed that risk type of strategy with live-action minigames just kept me hooked. Of the minigames, the one I could never do was the jousting contest. Uh, The others, I can get halfway there with the sword fighting, but no further, and the stoning of the castle walls is one that I can do every time. I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts on the game and help with the jousting contest if you can. Thank you. Well, James, I don't think I can help you with jousting. Uh, I was not successful at it. (laughs) Not once. I was able to get through... um, the uh the fighting stuff and i think as long as you choose sort of the right dude you can just sort of spam things and and that gets through but i know it really depends on uh on the version and i think uh jim's gonna have a, a voicemail here in a second that might give you a few more tips and and that's something you know being in the uk like you said uh Amiga, at least for me, was never really a big thing. I know they definitely, you know, existed in in North America and the U.S. and Canada, but they were definitely not as big a deal as uh, as they were in the U.K. So I know a lot more of my U.K. slash Europe slash non North American listeners have a lot more 
nostalgia and experience with the Amiga than than I ever did. And and frankly, yeah, it was never maybe just because of, you know, my father doing what he did and having access to the computers that he had access to. Uh, you know, an Amiga was sort of this frivolity that that, you know, it wasn't a serious business machine. So why would we have such a thing? So yeah, it's uh it's sort of another world that I wouldn't mind jumping into one of these days. I know a couple of you have uh have some Amigas that uh that use some original hardware. So, uh, you know, definitely a cool side project. I may jump into one of these days, maybe when the UM baby is a little bit older and I have a bit more, uh, free time. So thanks for that, James. Next up, we have an email from Tomer. Let's listen to what he's got to say. Hi, Joe. Figured I'd uh, chime in with my thoughts about Defender of the Crown. Um, so the first time I ever saw the game was uh, on a neighbor's Amiga back in 1987 or so. That was actually an Amiga 1000 or the original machine. Um, so I was like three or four years old uh, and I have a very distinct memory. It's actually one of my earliest computing memories uh, of playing Defender of the Crown on that neighbor's Amiga because it was just so far ahead of anything I've ever seen in terms of art and music. I just couldn't believe a computer could actually do that. Uh, something there's just something about the theme of the game, the the you know the castle backgrounds, the the graphics, the music, uh, even the mouse icon on the Amiga is actually uh, customized to suit the the theme of the game. So it, it just really resonated with me. Something just lovable about it. I don't know what exactly. And uh, there's actually a lot of uh, pretty well-known names credited for credited for making this game. So uh, it was actually uh, designed by Kellen Beck, uh, who also designed, among other Cinemaware titles, uh, a game that is not very well known, but I love, called Centurion: Defender of Rome. Uh, and then you had it was produced, I think, by Rob Landeros, uh, that went on to found Trilobite uh, with Graham Devine a few years later and came up with the seventh guest. Um, you had James D. Sachs, uh, who is an early, uh, early kind of Amiga artist, but really, really was the first one to kind of push the machine uh, as far as it would go in terms of pixel art. Just amazing graphics in this game. There's just, you know, there's just something about it. It works. It's it's a pretty fun game. Um, ironically, the game itself, in terms of gameplay, isn't very good. I mean, the strategy is kind of shallow. The controls are a little wonky. Every every single version has its its issues, uh, but it's still a lot of fun to play for whatever reason. I think pretty much anyone who grew up in the '80s and had a chance to play it on any platform uh, probably has fond memories of it. Uh, I later played this game on the PC, and despite the, the shortcomings of the platform, uh, you know, be it shitty <laughs> CGA graphics or, you know, crappy beeper music, I still love the game because it's just so good. Um, and, uh, you know, I was I was kind of dreaming of owning it on an actual Amiga for years and years, and actually that, that drove my uh, uh, my computer collecting hobby, in a sense. So when I actually got one, uh, a uh, Commodore Amiga 500 Plus, actually that was literally the first thing I ran on the computer because it was just itching to, to hear that music once again that I haven't heard for years and years. And it ran wrong because it turns out that newer versions of Kickstart caused some timing issues with the game and the music just runs a lot faster than it's supposed to. 
so anyway, I, I got that sorted out, and I figured I might as well make some recordings of the music because I really love it. And that was way back, like in 2005 or maybe even earlier, like the early days of the, of the World Wide Web as we know it. Um, so I actually wrote to uh, Jim Cuomo, the, the, I'm probably mispronouncing his last name, but he's uh, the musician behind the original version of the game, and he, he was kind enough to actually grant me uh, a, a license to post the recorded music from the game on my site, uh, to which uh, a link will be added to this email. Um, and uh, also he sent me a copy of what is called uh, his gameplay CD, which is uh, recorded versions of the music from various games that he wrote music, uh, music to, but with actual live instruments. So you have, um, you know, violins and various other instruments uh, thrown into the mix. It's really, really, really cool. Uh, and versions of the Defender of the Crown music from that are also posted on the site if anyone is interested. Uh, and I highly recommend checking them out. They're pretty interesting. So, yeah, uh, to summarize this very, very ridiculously long voicemail, uh, Defender of the Crown is a historical milestone in gaming. Uh, I think it was CinemaWare's first release, or, or certainly their first kind of highly popular and, and well-known release. And it really is... Up to this day, a very, very beautiful game, and I consider it to be a sort of a harbinger of things to come. What the what the medium is actually cap capable of. Uh, it's a fantastic, fantastic game, really worth looking into, uh, and it's really easy to find in, in various versions. So just give it a go. And anyway, thanks for listening to this rant. See you next time. Cheers. Well, thanks so much. Tomer, so much, so much great info, good, good memories in there. And, and I think, you know, you say it's sort of like a pretty simple, shallow game, but you know, there, there's definitely, you know, I'm obviously going to get to it in my verdict or, or whatever, but there's something about just a sort of a tight game loop with just enough variety to, to keep things exciting that, that makes a really good game. And, and sometimes if you just look at a description of a game, you're like, or, you know, you listen to me talk about this is how you play it. You go, eh, whatever. But when you actually play it, there's, there's this game much like, you know, civilization and things like that has that sort of one more turn kind of thing to it, which it's, it's hard to capture that. And it's hard to, to know that you have one of those before you actually send it out. To the world. So thanks for that. And next up, uh, you know, if Tomer thought that his email was uh, or voicemail was was long, I'm going to play uh, Jim Leonard of, uh, you know, Moby Gamer, who uh, we had on uh, the sound and, and audio uh, hangout, who's uh, very knowledgeable about all things uh, PC and all that, has uh, a voicemail as well. So take it away, Jim. Hey Joe, Jim Leonard here. You might know me as Moby Gamer on Twitter. Longtime listener of the podcast, and I love what you're doing. And uh, Little Birdie told me that you're going to be talking about Defender of the Crown, focusing on the PC version. I have a lot of experience with that specific version. In fact, it was the fifth game I've ever purchased for a computer system back in the 1980s. I believe it was roughly 1987. And uh, thought I'd give you some tips uh, about the game and maybe a little bit of trivia too, since I've uh, disassembled it, and I've looked in it and learned all of its nasty little secrets. Um, some tech info for you. Uh, a lot of people are familiar with the four-color CGA version, but there is, in fact, a 16-color three-voice version that came later. Uh, this was for the Tandy 1000 series, 
It's interesting in that it was only created for and marketed towards uh, European gamers. So if you're looking for a retail copy, you won't find it in the big box that people are used to seeing um, the original version in. It'll be a smaller Euro-style kind of a square box. And uh, the th one of the things I like about European discs is that the lettering is printed directly onto the disc uh, jacket, so it's not a sticker, so that's kind of cool. Um, you want to look for that as the Tandy 16-color version. This is perfectly playable in DOSBox if you don't have a Tandy, but you do have to set mode equals Tandy in order for that to work. Um, but even if you don't have the Tandy, uh, I remember then and now the CGA version had relatively good art. I had seen the original version on an Amiga, and uh, I guess I had my hopes up a little bit when I purchased the CGA version for my home computer. Um, even though the colors weren't good, the art was. Uh, it was a faithful conversion. And uh, some of the stuff it did actually took advantage of CGA where it could. For example, it changed the palette when you went into different sections. Like when you're saving a maiden and you go into her uh, bedchamber, uh, the palette gets brighter as you're looking at the silhouette of them. So that's kind of cool. And also when you joust on a real uh, IBM system with CGA, the screen shakes. It uses the uh, character generator registers to actually shake the screen, which is kind of cool. Um, one thing I also unfortunately remember about Defender of the Crown is that it was slower than it needed to be. It performed everything as a full-frame screen update, so even if only some numbers were changing on screen, it still kept updating the entire screen. So playing it can sometimes feel a little tedious. It, isn't, uh, it doesn't need to be that slow. Now, I've played this game at least 100 times, and I've won it probably at least 50 times, so I'd like to give you a couple of gameplay hints if you want to tackle this yourself. Uh, one thing that's interesting to note about the PC version is that it has different gameplay mechanics than a lot of the other versions. Uh, the Commodore 64 version, I believe, has spies. This one doesn't. And uh, this game is also a lot easier on the PC compared to the Amiga and some other platforms. So if you're going to start playing it on any platform, the PC is pretty good. If you want a leg up on everything, you can try to play the shock and awe gameplay strategy, which is to take over as many territories as you can and amass as much gold as you can and then as soon as you get defeated on the battlefield and go running back to your home castle take all that gold that you had been receiving for a couple of turns and put it all into troops and you'll have 50, 60, 70 troops right off the bat and then you can take that army out and just start smashing everything in your way. Um, this tends to work pretty well, although it's extremely risky, because if somebody gets to your home castle while your entire massive army is out conquering, you're instantly done. So uh, that's, But that's one way to do it. Uh, another thing people don't seem to realize is that uh, one of the territories on the very bottom of the map is connected by a single pixel to a territory in the middle. It doesn't look like you can cross there, but you can, at least in the PC version. So if you need to sidestep somebody, you can actually move your army across that single pixel. Catapults seem to mystify people on uh, all versions of Defender of the Crown. Um, the secret for the PC version is to play it on an appropriate speed system. Uh, it has to be like 8 megahertz or slower, or equivalent. If you play it too fast, then there's no way you're going to be able to line it up. And by lining it up, what you should do is start the catapult uh, retracting, and then look closely at the horizontal lines that make up the art uh, towards the bottom of the catapult, and then release it uh, on one of those lines. And when you find that 
it takes out the top row of the enemy wall, you're calibrated as it as it were. You know which line to let go the catapult to start attacking. Then all you have to do is pull it back uh, a little less by two pixels each time. And you'll knock the wall out lower and lower. And uh, the more you knock the wall out, the more your troops will damage uh, the enemy when you actually get into the castle. When I used to play this way, I'd put my eyes about three inches away from the screen. Uh, so anyone looking at me playing uh, thought I was you know, blind or crazy. But you know, if you stare right at those pixels, it's pretty easy to determine which ones are too apart from each other vertically. And so you can use the catapult better. No matter how silly you look, you can get perfect castle runs this way. But once you get really good at using the catapult, launch the disease very early, like on your very second throw. So your first throw should knock a hole in the wall at the top, and then the second should be the disease. If you do that, the earlier you use the disease, the more men you'll take out. If swordplay is bugging you, then pick Jeffrey Longsword. He's really weak on the battlefield, but... If you're gambling with the shock and awe gameplay that I mentioned earlier, um, he has a great trait in that he can always win any sword fight. Uh, pick Jeffrey Longsword, play with the keyboard, and then whenever you're raiding a castle or rescuing a maiden, you can completely spam attacking with the sword by simply holding down the enter key and letting keyboard repeat do its thing. He will always win every sword fight this way, so if you want your best chance at rescuing a maiden, pick Jeffrey Longsword. Another thing that's not terribly obvious from the manual is that when you're battling other people on the battlefield, you have these options. There's standard attack, and then there's also a ferocious attack, an outflank, and a bombard. And what those do, ferocious attack uh, will make your men take out more men, but only if your battlefield strategy skill is better. You can see this on the main menu as uh, leadership. So you need a high leadership for ferocious attack to work. If you don't, it'll backfire and you'll lose more men. Outflank it only works if you have uh, a few knights. The, the outflank is only telling the knights what to do. If you don't have knights and you pick outflank, once again, it backfires and you lose more men. And bombard, if that wasn't obvious, it only works if you have catapults, uh, specifically more catapults than the enemy does. If you do, use bombard and you can get a few extra men out that way. Otherwise, once again, it backfires and you lose more men. Jousting is super irritating. Uh, it's really almost impossible on the PC. Um, it's essentially random. Uh, choosing a joystick and using an actual joystick doesn't really help either. Uh, your goal is to try to hit the middle of the X of the opponent's shield, but if you can't do that, uh, don't worry about it, but just don't wager land during a jousting tournament because that's one of the most useless aspects of the game. Another tip that helped me is that if you don't have enough men to take down an enemy castle, you can kind of pick at them. You knock down a section of wall, launch the disease, launch all of your firebombs, and then as soon as the battle begins, just immediately retreat. And then you'll go back a territory. And then you can just repeat that until the enemy garrison is low enough that you can completely take out the castle. And uh, finally, I wouldn't buy any knights. Uh, three knights don't make that much difference in your party, but the same amount of gold buys 24 soldiers, and that does. So uh, spam putting all of your money into soldiers. Anyway, just a few tips from someone who's won the game probably more times than I should admit. And uh, hope this helps and love the show. Keep doing what you're doing. Talk to you later. Thanks so much, Jim. And, uh, 
you know, it's it's uh, <laughs> listeners that uh, like uh, like Jim and like Tomer and uh, and a bunch of other of you guys that make me realize how little I know about things. Uh, you know, you guys are super deep into this stuff, and 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 I love it. Thanks for all that great. Uh, great information. And, uh, you know, I'll have to admit Tomer and uh, Jim both sent in these uh, voicemails and even, you know, the emails and stuff that came in have come in, you know, they came in months ago. So I don't think they'll even remember things that they, uh, they said. So uh, yeah, that's, that's that for emails, voicemails, all of that. Let's uh, roll on and wrap this baby up. So, does Defender of the Crown hold up today? Well, I will absolutely, 100%, unequivocally say, sort of. As I say with many games I've covered in the past, uh, from the perspective of history, from the perspective of being a game that was groundbreaking and changed games, changed all games that came after it forever, Yes, this game is up there with the big guys and deserves its place in the pantheon of gaming history. But is it fun today? Well, I can say this with very little to no nostalgia whatsoever since I didn't play this game back in the day, but it is absolutely fun. As long as you don't invest too much time in anything outside of, you know, that main game loop. Uh, You know, if your goal is to take over all of England using your armies, then this is a very fun, if somewhat simple game. Uh, any action sequences outside of the main battle and castle siege screens, eh, at least to me, eh, they sort of suck. But, you know, what are you going to do? Uh, I know Jim explained how to win at the side-scrolling sword fighting portions. I wasn't very good at that, and uh, I just found them to sort of be interruptions. I'm sure there's also some trick to jousting, at least maybe on other platforms that aren't DOS. Uh, but to me, it's just a broken mini game that does add some cool graphics and flavor, but ultimately, again, is just sort of a waste of time. That said, though, I wish I had been uh, coherent enough at the time to record my play sessions with uh, with Defender of the Crown, because overall, the game really is a lot of fun, uh, you know, despite the more frustrating bits tacked on like i said this this game really does have that that you know je ne sais quoi aspect of uh you know one more turn one more turn one more turn until you either you know win or lose so play defender of the crown it is great yo blockers this is amiyurakago and you're listening to the upper memory block podcast with joe mastriani keep being awesome and remember you crack me up little buddy Okay, so that's that for our first real show. Back at it. Again, thanks to everyone for your patience with me and my dumb life. <laughs> Next time, we will be heading back to Blizzard Entertainment with one of their more interesting, random, sort of pseudo one-off properties, The Lost Vikings. Uh, we'll aim for that show to be out around the end of February, uh, making it my goal to get shows recorded and out around the last two tuesday of each month so you guys can hold me to that i'm also thinking that sometime in march ish uh, we'll get back on track with our super fun patreon hangout so if anyone has any ideas i've got a couple of ideas for topics but if anyone else does drop me a line to drop me a line you can send email or audio comments to podcast at umbcast.com thanks to rick moyer for his great audio work you can find his stuff over at moyermultimedia.com uh don't forget 
If you enjoy the show, you can support me over at patreon.com slash umbcast. Thanks to all the patrons. I mean, about 90% of you hung on, even though I didn't put out a show for like seven months. So thank you so much. It is so ridiculously appreciated, especially now that, uh, you know, the UM baby's around and uh, money's a little tighter than it once was. Uh, Check out the show notes at umbcast.com. Join the Facebook group over at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umb show and me personally at twitter.com slash billy bob 476 you can also find the show on youtube over at youtube.com slash umb cast where i put up videos on my game research sessions and other stupid things that i do subscribe to the show on itunes stream us live at stitcher radio that is that and we will see you next time for the lost vikings here in the upper memory block battle control terminated You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join.